if uh, John Lennon was still alive but retired and was like, yeah, I'm not really interested in recording any more Beatles records, but uh, you know what? Good for Paul McCartney. Have at it, mate. I just don't want to do the work. That would be a very different thing. <laughs> yes, that was a fantastic John Lennon impression. We watched Hard Day's Night recently. I have it in my body. Uh, Welcome to another episode of the MacGuffin Podcast, the movie review podcast that dreams are made of. Keith Foster, you are from San Diego, California. And Cassidy Robinson, you are recording in an undisclosed location in the Rocky Mountains. And today we'll be talking about uh, the new Transformers film. What is the full title of that? Oh, God. <laughs> Transformers Rise of the Beasts. We're still rising. <laughs> and for the official review between me and you, we'll be talking about the new Hulu feature film Flaming Hot. For the streaming homework, we'll be reviewing uh, The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, which we watched on Tubi. And yes, well, I watched on Canopy, because Canopy is fucking where it's at right now. Because Keith works for Canopy, and he hey, has man. to remind us every episode that he is now using Canopy. So, the Beatles are releasing a song. Have you have you seen mm. this? Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The Beatles are releasing a song where they're using AI to do what would have been John Lennon's parts in the song. This is uh, based in part on the technology used for Get Back was the name of the show, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And that was on Disney Plus, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yes. I think so. So, you know, obviously that's lame and stupid, but... There's been a lot of information coming out lately about the use of AI to generate certain things for movies, whether it be special effects, uh, possibly in the future, even scripts or... Yeah. Um, well, I mean, man, you are opening a can of worms here with AI. Um, so, that, I mean... For those of you who are not in the know uh, with like what's going on with the writer's strike and um, the actor's strike and stuff, AI is one of the bigger sticking points um, because the way AI works right now is everything is just sort of fed into this algorithm uh, as, as kind of like search points, right? Like Google, think of it like that. And you use that as prompts um, to create whatever it is you're looking for, whether it's a script or if it's AI art or whatever. Uh, the algorithm 
is able to, at this point, sort of produce an image or a script based on the prompts that are entered. Um, I mean, okay. That's the basic idea of what it is. Uh, now, at, at this for my point, at this point, sure. sure. Well, oh, I mean, I think the earliest it, use have of this. Have you heard the thing about uh, AI where it's it's having trouble now because AI is picking up on AI, and so it's it's feeding garbage into it, its own garbage into the algorithm. So like AR AI art is using AI art now as reference and oh, so it's that's funny that almost of, adds like a like the whole a whole new meaning to like the deep fried meme yes <laughs> yeah yeah it's a lot like that like it's uh and and I think that's one of the things that is the most frustrating about AI is it's like it's just sort of this regurgitation of shit mixed into a paint can and shaken up in a computer. Anyway, back to the story with the Beatles and them using AI to try to recreate John Lennon. Uh, absolutely fuck that. Uh, Paul McCartney is a monster and like the fact that they would even consider this is to me just absolutely abhorrent like it's it's not him it's only based off of recordings of him and i i understand that it's this new technology that some people are excited about but that sucks <laughs> there's enough written material where you know i mean it's you know to sort of dumb it down they've been using drum sampling in music for a long time, you know, in sure. performed music. And I'm not talking about, like, intentionally artificial sounding, like, 808s. Like, that was sort of the beginning of it. But now, for the most part, if you're listening to a record or a CD or a song on Spotify, whatever, uh, that's been professionally recorded... It's virtually impossible to tell the difference between program drums and a live drummer. And in fact, most professionally recorded music these days are using virtual drums uh, over live drums because you can get better isolation. It's just cleaner. It's faster. Uh, and there's been arguments up through the music world forever about you know, is that sucking the soul out of music because everything is so, like, perfectly timed and on a metronome. Okay, that... now, now let me let me add another moral layer to this. Yeah. Right? Uh, it's not just a drum machine. Now it is a drum machine that you have slapped your dead friend's name off on uh, saying, hey, my friend did this drum machine even though it is just an algorithmic uh, compilation of things that they they did like it's i don't give a fuck what paul mccartney or their pr or whatever says it's not john lennon right you know? right so the analogy that i was building is that what we're seeing here essentially is treating vocals like preset samples 
And uh, you can yes, get, you but can, and I, I would suppose probably the closest we've seen of this. Um, I, I didn't watch Get Back, and I'm sure that there's it's been mm-hmm. even more perfected since then. But uh, people probably recall when uh, deep fakes started coming out, sure. and that is yeah. that was yeah. sort of a early crude version of what you could do with AI. If if there's enough video footage of somebody, yes, an actor, or celebrity, they could actually frame for frame, fit it over top the face of anybody and create, yes. uh, you know, facsimile to a, to a performance. And I think in terms of film and yes. movies, this is kind of like the first step to something like that, where to play good cop, I think some of those early... Uh, versions of of doing the CGI younger version thing, like, you know, um, in, like, some of the Star Wars movies or the Tron sequel. I think in those cases, Deepfake would have been a, the better option. Um, and I don't actually even see a problem with it in those cases, but... Now, now yes, okay, you've, you're talking about a lot of different things here, right? So, so deep fake is just a, a type of technology. And, yeah. and I, I agree with you that it is a better approximation of, of sort of what is happening here. Um, and yeah, I do th- feel like the deep fake technology uh, for some of the earlier sort of de-aging stuff, uh, it, it, in a technological aspect, is superior. The problem is it's not just the technological aspect, right? It's the moral implication. In the case of Tron Legacy, you actually had Jeff Bridges as the actor agreeing like, oh, okay, they're going to fucking take my face and make it young? Cool. Whereas now we're coming into the, the weird situation of these legacy characters like fucking Princess Leia, and they are, the actor is is passed on, and the IP machine is like, okay, well, we can't just let that character die. Uh, so instead of recasting it, hey, we have this technology. Let's do this fucking weird soulless approximation of something that looks like a person. But it, it, to me, the moral implication is the big part of it, right? If uh, John Lennon was still alive but retired and was like, yeah, I'm not really interested in recording any more Beatles records, but uh, you know what? Good for Paul McCartney. Have at it, mate. I just don't want to do the work. That would be a very different thing. Yes, that was a fantastic John Lennon impression. We watched Hard Day's Night recently. I have it in my body. Uh, <laughs> but he's not around, right? You know, it, it, so yeah. he can't sign off on this shit. So it's it's this thing of like, Let's take this thing from this person who used to exist. And to me, it's like, let's strip mine it for fucking content. And it's just gross. Well, and I mean, this would just be the beginning of, you know, something. But you haven't watched The Flash yet. We might be talking about that in the next episode. (laughs) 
we'll see. Right. I mean, there's lots of cases of, of actors who have passed on of IPs that people would love to resurrect or or actors who have gotten too old to play the part or whatever. Just where recast just, it, please. I, I understand that argument, and I... I don't love the implications of that either for the obvious moral thing. I'm a little bit more concerned because film is already going further and further away from story and caring about Mm -hmm. story and really just, you know, ticking all the boxes in terms of what is needed for the franchise and what is needed for the genre. Certain IPs have become nostalgia farms. Beyond that, I'm just talking about when AI gets good enough, and I don't even think it's that far from it, to be just good enough, where they can go into a script machine and say, write me a Guardians of the Galaxy reboot uh, with these characters and this conflict. Beep, boop, bop, beep, boop, boop. Here's your script, well, guys. I, uh, so again, I and, mentioned the or or that's one less person you you have to pay. That's a that's a big uh, thing in their contract. I, I mean, here's the thing: AI as a as a tool uh, is so new that nobody knows what the fuck to do with it yet, right? So uh, there was right. like a, a recent case where they ruled that um generated material couldn't be copyright or couldn't be trademarked or or something um because it was just a you know this sort of conglomeration of other trademark pieces it, it wasn't anything original essentially and you know i you're right we're not too far away from that being possible Fuck that. Like, absolutely fuck that. Why do we even give a fuck about story at all if there's no human element to it? And and I, I feel like... Or if it becomes so indistinguishable mm-hmm. from yeah. the mediocrity of current storytelling as it stands that I'm, I'm less worried about them trying to implement it than I am people just being like, eh, I can't tell the difference, so I'm going to go and see it anyway. Sure. Yeah, that's... And a, that's... I, I am going to put my balls on the line here. Not that my balls necessarily matter No, in this fuck case, it. Let's put our balls on the line. Fuck AI. If, if it gets to the point where there's no official writer, or they can come up with some sort of based on the blah, 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 blah. Like, if you can look at an IMD writing credit and know that that means AI, I'm not going to see that Absol- film. Uh, yes. I don't care if it's the sequel to a movie I've been waiting Absolutely. for. I 100% agree. And I'm not watching movies made by robots. There's no, there's no point. You've already seen it. Whatever it is the robot has regurgitated, you've already seen some version of it. There is literally nothing new that the algorithm can add. I normally... Th- would say like you know the awards don't matter and who really cares it's all just a big circle jerk blah 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 and that is That's the true. case but in this case this is a place where they could actually flex some sort of muscle and say your movie even if it's just for technical achievements or whatever if they if, if all of the guilds put their 
their balls on the line and say, we will not nominate movies that are written by AI or use mm. this technology for these in these ways. You're giving the Academy a lot of fucking credit right now, but but I like where you're at that. At least it's something. Yeah. It's some kind of pressure from the other direction. I mean, it, I mean, I think it is so. I it think is, the the thing is, it's so new. It's so, and that's the other thing that's frustrating about it, right? Is it's so new that we don't know what's going to happen with this one way or the other. Like it, it might not ever get better than just this sort of approximation of screenwriting or whatever. Either way, I don't like it. Like it will either stay shitty and fed by the algorithm or, you know, you'll get the corporate studio greed that exploits it for cheaper. And well, they're de that definitely going to yes. happen regardless. The, the corporations at B have absolutely no interest in creativity anyway. I think we have the benefit of it being an early enough technology that hopefully we can uh, prevent it from taking over the industry at this point. Uh, I, I see more likely it's going to go the other way. Also, I, I honestly feel like, I you know, I've, there's some podcasts I watch or whatever. They were messing around in chat gpt and they uh the podcast uh it was like a live stream podcast it's well known enough and have enough episodes published they were able to tell chat gpt write a script for an episode where this happens and it and they kept doing that you know like do this but funny or do mm -hmm. this but mm -hmm. this happens and it was able to spit it out and it i mean it it didn't, it, they weren't great. You know, the little scripts they got were like obviously phony and they kind of read like bad commercials or like the fact that it was as close as and even that. And that was them like fucking around on a podcast, right? Where you have like these right. tech bros who are wholly invested in it and will spend, you know, the amount of time that you could spend to learn an actual skill on trying to find this shortcut to circumvent the skill. And it's pathetic. I am so anti-AI that I agree with you. It, when we start g getting scripts and fucking whole productions that are produced by AI, I have zero interest in that. Well, like I said, I think there are some exceptions well, when it comes to effects. Just to clean things up a little bit. And I'm I'm way more concerned with what's gonna happen on the writing end than on the production end. <sighs> Fucking it's a real Although whatever it is, it, it's going to put people up. I mean luckily the Writers Guild right now, you know, they've been on strike for as of this recording, I think seven weeks. Uh and they are putting their balls on the line. All right. Uh, with that, let's talk about some homegrown salt-of-the-earth <laughs> cinema <laughs> with the new Transformers film, the sixth in the franchise. Oh God, I don't even know. Uh, okay, there's Transformers, Transformers <clears throat> Dark of the yeah. Moon, Transformers Revenge of the Fallen, Transformers Last Night on Earth, Transformers... 
There's another one that I'm forgetting. Transformers, Mark Wahlberg. Oh, uh, Transformers, Dinobots, uh, Bumblebee, and now Transformers Rise. The- yeah, I think this is the sixth one. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Go ahead and tell us what happens to okay. this one. Uh, Transformers, Rise of the Beasts. Fucking, they should have just called it Transformers Beast Wars. But whatever. So this is set in the 90s, kind of a sequel to Bumblebee, which was set in the 80s, and question mark prequel to the Michael Bayverse? That I'm not sure. But what happens is you have Anthony Ramos playing uh, Noah Diaz, who is this sort of former soldier, down on his luck guy slumming it on the streets of New York and this woman played by Dominique Fishback Elena Wallace who works for this museum and uncovers this ancient artifact as Noah is in the middle of a carjacking she unlocks this ancient artifact which sends a signal to space uh, to this, you know, world-ending entity. And it also sends a signal to these Autobots, these robots in disguise. Then they have to fight over this, you know, universal MacGuffin. Along those lines, uh, they run into some other robots who turn into animals. That's basically the movie. Uh, human runs across Transformers, has to get a space thingy from the bad Transformers who are trying to get the space thingy to a bad space robot. Describes every Transformers movie. Yes. Um, which sort of brings me to both the strengths and the problems with this version of that movie. I feel like... As far as the Transformers cinematic canon goes, this is one of the stronger installments. Anthony Ramos as Noah Diaz brings a lot of heart to the to the movie, uh, and then he is all he also teams up with uh, this sort of main Autobot for this installment, Mirage, who's played by Pete Davidson, and the two of them have really good chemistry. You know, they have this sort of New York attitude that plays off of each other really well. Um, And that aspect of the movie reminded me more of an installment like Bumblebee, which was way more character driven. Um, uh, You know, Bumblebee was just sort of about a girl and her robot. This definitely takes a lot of notes from that. The problem is this movie is much larger in scope than Bumblebee uh, because, it, you know, it tries to add all of these globetrotting elements and this sort of world-ending robot threat, which after six of these movies starts to feel a little like, okay, why is this any different than any of the other robot threats? They play it as well as they can for something like that um i i I do feel like the director here stephen capel jr uh who also directed creed 2 i I feel like this 
is sort of the Creed 2 of Transformers movies. Like, it hits all the beats that you want it to hit, just not quite as good, right? Like, this isn't the guy who directed the first Creed. Ryan Coogler? Yeah. This isn't Ryan Coogler's directorial vision, but it's, you know, it's a competent follow-up. It's, we're going to take this formula, we're going to hit those beats, but we're going to also inject enough humanity in it that you actually give a shit. I actually, if the other four, if the Bayverse didn't exist, this would be like, oh, this is a solid follow-up to Bumblebee. It does have some of the same problems as the Michael Bay movies, though, where you're injecting way too many characters and just sort of way too much stuff going on around the peripheral of it that it's hard to get attached to that. Like, this this movie tries to make Optimus Prime a main character, and it really shouldn't have. It really should have sidelined him. Like, sure, have Optimus Prime. I get it. It's Transformers. Uh, you know, have him say Autobots roll out or whatever. But the heart of this movie is uh, Noah and Mirage and the way they kind of connect. And and I feel like it needed about 20% more of that and less other shit. Okay, so this leads me to my my only real question about this movie. Because I had not planned on seeing it. Mm-hmm. Because outside of Bumblebee... I just don't care anymore and haven't for a while. But as somebody who grew up during the time of Beast Wars, when Beast Wars was on television, and attached myself more to that franchise in the 80s version, how well are they integrated here? And what uh, is it just basically a Transformers movie where they run into them and then they're, they end up fighting together? Or... Do the Beast Wars actually, do they at least hint at a world that they exist in outside of this story? Uh, I mean, I would say they hint at it, but for the most part, they just kind of feel like other robots that they run into. That w- That was probably one of my biggest complaints about the movie is like, they don't really... <laughs> There's not really any reason for these Beast Wars characters to be there other than to get the names. Like, they could be interchangeable with whatever Transformers. It's just that Beast Wars was a popular cartoon 20 years ago, and so why not take some of those characters and those names? They don't really do much with them. And I I think that is both to the benefit and the detriment of this movie like i i feel like this could have easily gotten gone the way of the dinobots in whatever transformers movie that was where they were just like here's robots that are dinosaurs uh these do at least feel like a little separated like it, it does feel a little bit like there's some kind of mythology beyond that Um, my problem is that they, they introduce, you know, like 
four or five Maximals, and only two of them are actually, like, really characters in the movie. Uh, you know, like, you get Optimus Primal, and you get Air Razor, and, but, like, Cheetor, Rhinox, like, there's, they're absolutely indistinguishable. You see them transform, and that's about it. So, it's, it's a little... Like, if you're going to this looking for a Beast Wars movie, it's very disappointing. But I do appreciate that they actually take that screen time and spend it to develop the characters that they do care about. Like, I actually, I like uh, Noah, uh, who was also in In the Heights. Uh, For those of you who've seen Hamilton, he was in Hamilton. And I really like... Pete Davidson is Mirage. Like, he is charming and charismatic. Like I said, that's kind of the core of the movie. I think it just needed, like, just a little bit more of that. And, like, we don't really need the Beast Wars here. How were the Lin-Manuel Miranda songs utilized in this That film? was uh, The Little Mermaid, which my wife went to see instead of Transformers, and I chose to see Transformers instead of Little Mermaid, so. But she, <laughs> she liked the extra song, so whatever. Alright. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't uh, see myself fleeing to see this movie. I, I was hoping I was hoping that there would be you know, just sort of a framing device of the modern sure. world, and then we get a whole bunch of Beast Wars stuff in the middle. But uh, it seems like that's quite the opposite. You know, it's kind of that thing where there, there's a lot of ideas. There, were, There's a lot it has in parallel with the cartoon movie from the 80s that I actually think they, they didn't need. Because um, I agree with you. I think if it had just sort of focused more on the actual Transformers and the Beasts, uh, Beast Wars Transformers, it, it would have been better. But that being said, I actually liked it more than I've liked, I think, any of the Michael Bay movies. Like, if you have any interest in Transformers as an IP, I think this is my favorite one since Bumblebee. Okay. It's fun. I mean, I I liked Bumblebee, but that I liked it because there's was very few other characters and the stakes are pretty small. Well, and that, so, that's the problem with this one. It's like Bumblebee, but if they added more characters and they made the stakes way too high. Uh, Bumblebee is definitely the better movie, um, but this one's, it's fun enough. Like, I, I actually had a good, pretty good time with it. Um, it's not, and, you know, a lot of the action is better than just sort of toasters clanging against each other thank you for that let's go ahead and move on to flaming hot uh which is a film we both watched this was on hulu an original film this is uh directed by ava longoria written by linda yvette chavez based on the book uh a boy a burrito a cookie from janitor to executive by Richard Montanez. Montanez. And the story basically follows him. Very similar, I guess, to your lead character. An out-of-his-luck uh, criminal 
who is trying to make ends meet to feed his family. And he decides he wants to get out of the streets, get out of, you know, uh, dishonest work. So he finds a job through a relative of his, uh, sweeping the floors and cleaning the machinery at the Frito-Lay factory somewhere in Oxnard. While there, he becomes more and more sort of curious about the other jobs in the factory and sees himself uh, being able to to come in during extra hours and extra shifts, picking up extra skill sets and building his way up the ladder as there's an economic downturn where people are losing their jobs and their factory might get closed. And it's at this point that he decides to start experimenting on his own with different flavors that the Frito-Lay company has never bothered to really approach, trying to come up with a spicy flavor of their products, specifically their Cheetos, that would move in these inner-city neighborhoods that are largely Latino and uh, be able to use that as a way to sort of propel himself even further, taking uh, a lot of inspiration from the head of the Frito-Lay company, um, or corporation, rather, played by Tony Shalhoub, uh, Roger Enrico. I guess uh, before I have a lot to say, but before I get into everything, what did you what did you think of this one? I also have a lot to say. Uh, <laughs> um, I mean, okay, here's the thing: we are we have fully entered the phase of uh, long form commercials as cinema. Um, uh, you know, just sort of brand origin stories at this point. Um, uh, as we're talking about this flame and hot and earlier this year, we reviewed, um, air the story behind air Jordans, the Nike shoe. I will say in regards to this movie specifically versus air, it does feel like that they're at least trying to say a little bit more, um, like this, you know, they're framing this as an immigrant story, as, you know, a, a Mexican-American story. And for the most part, I think that makes it work a little bit better because it's not just, oh, look at how Flamin' Hot Cheetos were made. It's it's more the story of, you know, this is how specifically I overcame you know, this sort of uh, Mexican-American prejudice and Flamin' Hot Cheetos is just sort of the result of that. You know, this story has a lot more to say about uh, sort of economics than that. Uh, I also think this movie does the thing that I complain about a lot, uh, where I, I feel like it's overly sentimental uh, to the point where it kind of becomes maudlin at points, um, especially in regards to uh, the the way faith plays into their story. It 
borderline teeters into just becoming a Christian movie. Um, and all of the sentimentality bullshit that comes along with that. So that's my basic thought on it is this is a, this is a brand movie that becomes a Christian movie um, that occasionally has moments of fun within that. But I, I feel like this movie could have gained a lot from exploring the criminal past of the main character a little bit more. Um, for the most part, this movie is like 80% second act. Yeah, which if you're going to extend any of the acts, that's the best one to extend. Um, Sure. Yeah. Oh, boy. Where do I even start? So, uh, as far as the Christian thing goes, I believe somewhere in the production of this, there is the influence of a Christian film production or something that Ava Longoria is associated with. So this is like Christian movie adjacent. Okay. So, so that is a thing that yeah. wasn't okay. I mean, it's, it's, it's used sparingly, uh, uh, you know, and it is in terms of, you know, the, I think it's used at least in a way that informs the world and the characters it's not just sure, things yes. magically happen. Yes, but there are one too many scenes where characters pray for a thing and then the, the prayer comes true for me. Right. Um, There's at least three of those scenes where, oh, let's light the candle and pray and then you get a job and let's light the candle and pray and then you get the meeting with Tony Shalhoub and then... Let's light the candle and pray. And oh, now everybody loves flaming hot cheese. Like, it's literally like one too many times for me to be like, okay. Yeah, where it, it, it seemed like it was definitely a motif at the very least. Yeah, I mean, and, and what uh, I, motif or straight up agenda? <laughs> sure. Right. I, the agenda that I felt more throughout the movie, maybe unsurprisingly, given my review for for air earlier is the naked corporatism of the movie. Oh, I mean, yeah. there's, I mean, the, the main character is a Frito lay company, man, from start to right. Finish. And all over the movie, you see their, their labeling and their packaging and their signage. It is constantly reminding you almost to Josie and the Pussycats level uh, exploitation of here is okay. Here is the thing that we are that this company is promoting. Quick, quick, quick sidebar. Quick sidebar. At any time during the viewing of this movie, did you think, "Fuck, I wish I had some flaming hot Cheetos right now"? Oh, for sure. Yeah. But <laughs> I'm more. I mean, I'm more of a Takis guy personally. But um, so, uh, they're always too spicy for me. But <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> It did make him look good. I had a bad allergic reaction to Takis one time, so I have to chill on those. But yes, uh, the 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 blatant corporatism, the American dream, bootstraps, pull yourself up, you know, rags to riches story. Anybody can make it. Which is 
which is, uh, I, I mean, there is a, there is sort of a subplot at odds with that too, right? Because there's this whole chunk of the movie where Reagan corporate America fucking decimates this factory and practically ruins everybody's lives. But then, yes, it's still like, oh, this is the American dream that you can create this product for this brand and rise above the station of janitor. Right. And not only that, but you can you can go from, you know, mopping and sweeping to doing a board a boardroom meeting to having your own name on the door all in the same movie uh, with very few steps in between. And I'm sure a lot of that was sort of truncated for movie reasons. But as far as the appearance of political neutrality by by acknowledging the the economic downturn towards the Reagan years. Um, there's this Well what's uh, what's crazy is it, it it brings it up. It specifically names Reagan and then it it doesn't straight up say you know, like this guy fucked all of the working class over that we are still feeling the effects of today. Right. Uh, no, it's just like, oh, these are hard times we fell on. But the ones who deserved it made it out. And uh, yeah. that is the literal definition of neoliberalism. And that's what this movie the, the, is. The, the, this janitor worked harder than the other janitors, and he ended up a CEO. Right. Yeah, I mean, you even have uh, Tony Shalhoub. It's supposed to be this inspirational character who says, think like a CEO. And that's meant very sincerely. I mean... Yeah, I know. When, when they, there was literally that moment in the movie, and I was like, thinks like a CEO, like... What, like shit for brains who doesn't know shit about his own company? Right, exactly. I mean, that. so this has been a – I mean, I'm getting on my leftist soapbox here. But this has been like the, the myth that has been perpetuated since the Reagan years to, to play it off like, like uh, you know, here's, the, here's our political villain – that we can say, you know, did all of this, but not acknowledge that a different political reality or a different economic reality before that villain and just carry on the same, the same well, it, uh, uh, economic uh, agenda it between both the, the problem is, parties in America. And that's what's interesting about this movie is – the way it tries to frame the Mexican-American experience and do that while also fucking licking the boots of the oppressor is kind of confounding. No, it's really annoying is what it is. I mean, it, it <laughs> and it's, you know, I mean, the movie's made the way that it's made specifically to to play into that that the myth of the American dream, that bootstraps mentality, which, sure. um, you know, if we want to get into myth making, there is the greater myth of this movie, which you can choose to be annoyed about or not. Um, this guy made this all up. None of this happened. Yeah, I, I have kind of heard that, but I, I have not looked into 
what was fabricated and what was not. So there's an article in the LA Times that you can look up. It's called The Man Who Didn't Invent <laughs> Flaming Hot Cheetos. It says here in the article, Montoya's has built a lucrative uh, second career out of telling and selling the story, appearing for, at events for Target, Walmart, Harvard, etc. Uh, then they, they talk about him writing the book. And it says, Montoya's didn't invent Fleming Hot Cheetos. According to interviews with more than a dozen former Frito-Lay employees and the archival record of Frito-Lay itself, none of our records show that Richard was involved in any capacity in the Fleming Hot test market. That doesn't mean we don't celebrate Richard, but the facts do not support the urban legend. So... I I read the whole article at some point, but it, basically, Frito Lay just thought it was a good story, even if it's not true. It was better than the one they had, uh, and he was already doing these speaking events, and he was okay, he was so, embellishing his role. So they exploited a con man who was working for them, and were like, "Hey, this story works and actually makes us look a little bit better." Uh, so let's fucking run with yeah, it. Yeah, they were like, basically like, go on, keep telling people that. That's why he was al- allowed to write the book and all the rest of it. Now, I imagine he he probably might have been a janitor or something like that and then worked his way up in some sort of fashion. But as far as him creating the flavoring for Flaming Hot and that being what catapulted him to his uh, current position at Frito-Lay, that was definitely not the case. So there's that. So taking that into account, which in and of itself, you, you know, you could choose to be annoyed by that or not. There's always... Well, I I mean, here's the thing. With, With any biopic, with any based on a true story thing, like, like it, it's, it's never going to be that, right? Like it's, it's, it's a screenplay first. It's it's what is a good story. So so sure. I, I I'm not that invested in that because honestly, even in this movie, that's not the biggest part of this story. Right? Like the, the biggest part of the story is this guy who came from the streets and you wanted to turn away from crime and be, and rise above his station. Uh, the Flaming Hot Cheetos, sure, was just sort of what got him there. I, I, my problem with this as a story is it just, again, it just feels so tame and sanitized. Like even the part where he's supposedly like doing crime, it's right. so vague and toothless that it's like it, it doesn't like he says a few times that he was a criminal and like. It implies he was dealing drugs or whatever. But even that, it's so nonspecific. You're not a criminal anymore. We can't turn back to crime, even though they never even show you that in the first place. Like, the the worst we get is, uh, you know, a cutesy flashback scene where he, like, throws a VCR over his shoulder or some shit. Right. And it, it again, that's what I... All of this is what I'm talking about. Like, this movie just feels so 
sanitized and scrubbed clean and toothless. He he can't really be a drug dealer. It can't really criticize the economic systems that put the family in hardship. It just it feels so brand driven that it can't really be anything more than a fucking hour and a half long commercial. Right. And and you know, tonally the movie's kind of going for something lighter and comedic. And Ava Longoria, she what she brings to it as a director is basically trying to make all of this as palatable as possible. And and also she uses a lot of winking at the camera sort of techniques where we get a ton of voiceover. Yeah, the- they they imply that he's sort of a an unreliable mm-hmm. narrator. Uh, now, how unreliable they don't imply, but they imply that he's an unreliable narrator where he retells things in sort of a funny fashion. Remind me a bit of the Michael Pena stuff in Ant Man, and I would not be surprised if that was sort of the jumping off point as a tonal mark that they were trying to sure, which hit. which works as a two minute segment in Ant Man, right? But as a whole feature length, you know, commercial movie, it again, there's moments where it works and and it you know, it's funny enough. Um but for the most part, even as a comedy, it's not really trying to be that funny. I, well I think it's it it sort of supplements light and airy for comedy. Sure. I mean, it yeah. wants to be able to have scenes where characters are, you know, in confrontation with each other, like him arguing with his father about some of the abuse that he went through or whatever. <laughs> talking oh, to there his were, kid. That scene was wild because it goes from zero to 60. It goes from... Uh, from this is just another scene to now I'm having a fucking Emmy moment yeah. or whatever. Yeah. So it, it, there's that or when he's talking to his kids about racism and things like that. So the movie wants to sort of live in this uncommitted middle ground between. It just wants to be as palatable as possible. And by doing that, it removes any flavor. Uh, to to pardon the the pun, I right? Like, I mean, there's no spice to this movie. Um, I think you get one pretty good performance out of this, and that's from uh, Dennis uh, Haysbert. Uh, most people probably know of him as the the Allstate, the Allstate guy. guy. Um, he was also in Heat and. Uh, uh, a lot of other things, but uh, you know what? I I actually think that for the most part, the performances here are not the problem. I think um, I think Jesse Garcia is very charismatic. He's very fun to watch. Yeah. Um, Annie Gun uh, Annie Gonzalez, you know, same like she she does her best with sort of what they have to work with. Plays his wife. Um, uh, you know, Tony Shalhoub's a great actor. They just. None of them have a lot to really chew on here except sort of corporate spew. Yeah, I mean, you do have Matt Walsh who as his like middle management factory guy who basically playing him as Mr. Spacely. 
Yeah, well, That's, he's he's the to- he's the token sort of like white establishment bumbling sort of corporate boss who doesn't actually know anything. Yeah, he's fine. I mean, I like Matt Walsh. I mean, I like Matt Walsh. I think he's bad in this. I think that's a really overarch, obnoxious performance. And it's not written terribly well either. None of them I, are. I don't but... think it's the performance that's the problem. I think he's fine. It's just literally whenever he's on screen, you know he's just going to be insufferably racist. Yeah, that's why I thought that the one character... uh who plays the guy who was helping him along and teaching him the tricks of the trade with the machinery. I thought I, he, his role is, is relegated to silliness, but his, he, he's, well, that's, that's what I think. But I is think still he's funny. bringing a real performance to it. And I think that he's informing that character with more than what's on the page. Whereas everybody else is kind of living in that Hallmark movie of the week kind of territory. Sure. I I think I again I don't think the problem is the performances. I think it's all on the page and behind the camera. Um I mean I agree. I think Dennis A. Haysbert is great uh as an actor, but you know, even in this he's sort of relegated to magical black man uh mentor who who just happens to be, you know, better at, at all of the stuff than anybody else, but then he still can't exceed anything without the help of his friend. Like, it, it it's still very arch. Well, but yeah, I agree. The story like, is, yeah, because it's... Yes, yes. Because it's built on a house of lies, Keith. This whole movie is everything here. Is, we might as well be reviewing like a Narnia movie because that's about how realistic any of this is. But but that's what I'm saying. Like even within that, it, it even though the movie wants to be anti-racist, it still plays into these racist tropes. Like so, I was strongly reminded. Have you ever been in a situation where you're talking with somebody? who clearly has some sort of, like, uh, vestigial racism that they want to assure you that they don't have, and whenever... Okay, no, 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 before we go, before we go to, uh, I want to say that, that this is the whole, this is the whole theory behind, like, I cannot think of the term, but the idea is... Right? Like, everybody's experiences are different. So, a Latino male's experiences are going to be different than a Latino female's experiences, which are going to be different than, uh, you know, a black male's experiences, which are different than black female experience. Like, like the idea is... Intersectional. 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 Yes. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Uh, yeah. Intersectional theory. And... This movie this- isn't working on that level, though. Not even, not even, it's not even trying to. And that's, that's my point is it's like literally, you know, the main character says, hey, they just throw all the brown ones away, right? And it's referring to both him as a Latino male in America and uh, uh, a black man in America. And it's like, yes, technically that's true. But also there's a lot of, of differences between those two communities as well. Like, 
Like, there is no subtlety or nuance to it at all. It is just... Well, right. This this is why this is sort of textbook neoliberalism, is because you you sort of Trojan in uh, economic conservatism through liberal identity politics. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what this movie is in a nutshell. Um, I didn't like it. I didn't like it much at all. Uh, I thought that it was... Yeah, it kind of sucks. I thought it, it's just on a vibes level um, inoffensive. But if you even think about it for five seconds, it just becomes more and more irritating. Yeah, and it's it's not even that like entertaining. Like, no, it's, it's not okay. good enough to put up with, with what it's trying to get away with. Exactly. There's like, there's a couple moments that are kind of funny that are kind you know, but for the most part, it's kind of a slog of a movie. It, it just sort of is until it's done. Oh, I, and that's, I thought it breezed. And that's at I best. thought it breezed by fast enough. I didn't have any problems with, with it on a structural level. I just nah, think man, that it's, I got, I I got bored literally after like the third or fourth time they were like, oh, okay, now we got to pray about this. Or like, there's so many sort of false climaxes of when are you going to have this innovative idea? But, you know, it it doesn't come to like literally the last 15 minutes or some shit. So to me, it just... It's kind of boring. It's kind of a cock tease of a movie. And that's best case. And that's to get the stuff that you're hoping to get out of it. It's not that funny. It's not that compelling. It's just kind of a boring slog, I thought. I, I don't think it's boring. I just think it's it very belittling to the audience and basically treating everybody who's watching it as an idiot. So I give it a D. All right, uh, I'll give it a a C minus, even though we've raged about it for forty five minutes now. Yeah, it, to me, it's just, it's kind of just a feels like a made for TV movie. I mean, it you know that, that opens up the discussion of what that even what, is. What anymore. that is? Yeah, I mean, this is a made for streaming movie, and the quality well, can it, range from well it's interesting cuz there've been a, a few made for streaming movie you know movies that have tested well and gotten theatrical releases primarily within the horror uh subgenre but but this uh i i don't think uh was able to cross that line no there there's some things that make it to streaming because it wasn't going to come out anywhere else and it's lucky to get what it's getting. And then there's some that can ride a wave all the way to award season. This is not that movie. No, it's not. Okay, let's go ahead and do our last segment now, which is the streaming homework with The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. And I'll let you uh, set that up. Okay. Uh, the Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert starts with... Hugo Weaving playing a drag performer that goes by the name of Tick, who reaches out to a transgender peer, played by Terrence Stamp, playing the character of Bernadette, to follow them into the desert 
to to go up to a different part of Australia to perform at uh, this hotel in, I, I believe it was Alice Springs. Bernadette's partner has just passed away. And so they need sort of a, a, a new perspective, a, a new lease on life, a new purpose. Um, and they are joined on the road by Adam, uh, who is played by Guy Pierce, who is uh, this younger performer, sort of a party queen. And they, they decide to trek across the Australian countryside in an old sort of uh, busted out bus that they dub Priscilla, um, who becomes the queen of the desert uh, by the by the name of the title. You know, this is a road movie where uh, they sort of encounter different towns in, in Australia, a lot of which are sort of a smaller market than they are used to in Sydney and have uh, various misadventures on the way to... This final performance where uh, Hugo Weaving's character has some surprises um, that are eventually revealed to Adam and Bernadette. Yes, he has sort of ulterior motives. Yeah, uh, for, for taking this, into this trip. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so this is a, this is a movie that came out in 1994, and you know, big names, you know, Guy Pierce. Yeah, Hugo Weaving, Weaving. Terence Stamp. Uh, yeah. More of a character actor, but uh, but still a very well-known one. Right, and specifically very well-known. At this point in time, when they were making this movie, he would have been the most well-known of the three. Um, Weaving had only done a few film projects in television before this. Yeah, I, th I think this was actually Hugo Weaving's like big break. Yeah, it was in a lot of ways, and probably the the same could be said for Guy Pierce as well. Uh, this was made, you know, the Australian independent film. Um, but Terrence Stamp at the time was mostly well known for playing sort of tough guys, heavies in British cinema. Um, prior to this point, he's also uh, Zod in Superman Two. Uh, you know, and other things of like that. People had not seen him do this type of work before, and him really sort of throwing himself into it. Um, and this movie came out, I think, one year before Tu Wong Fu, Thanks for Everything, came out in America. Uh, and there's a lot of similarities between the movies. You Have know, you ever seen Tu Wong Fu? For sure, yeah. I I almost as tried to assign that as the next homework, but uh, who fucking knows what you've seen? <laughs> yeah, so both movies are road movies with drag queens where they go into small town, rural society and encounter various forms of bigotry and able to sort of change hearts and minds and live out their dreams and, um, you know, fish out of water comedies largely. And both of them have a similar but sort of different approach to it. I think uh, Tu Wong Fu sort of leans more into the American comedy milieu of the time. Of, uh, you know, something of during the, the time of like, if you think of a movie like Tommy Boy or 
what have you, just movies that are a little bit more arch in general, mm-hmm. uh, and and use that as a way to to sort of cushion the camp of drag into that world to sell it to a mainstream audience. Whereas this movie is as much as it is a movie that it's important in the overall history of LBGT cinema, you know, coming right off the heels of like the, the queer new wave and things like that. Uh, this movie is, you know, there's definitely a lot of camp. There's a lot of archness here, but it's also plays the cultural danger they're in mm-hmm. pretty seriously at times. And also there's uh, stylistically uh, this very Australian thing about this movie where whether it's this or it's one of their Westerns or it's something like Mad Max, um, the outback and the landscape is always a character in these movies. And it's always sort of informing what the characters are going through. No, I, I know what you're talking about. And and there is... Um... So I am I have not seen Tu Wong Fu, Thanks for Everything, Julie Newmar, but and this is my first experience with Pr- the Adventures of Priscilla Queen of the Desert. Is this the first time you've seen this? Yes, it has. I mean, this is one that I've uh, been meaning to watch for a long time and just never have. And I didn't even know it was like a full drag movie. I thought it was maybe even like kind of this like fantasy thing, um, like. I thought, you know, I thought it might be more campy than it was. Um, Now, and that isn't to say that there isn't camp in this movie. Like, the drag fucking serves in the best ways. Um, But that that is seen as their performance, right? That is seen as drag. Um, you know, they are characters that exist outside of that. That is just their profession. And I get, I wasn't expecting that. I wasn't as expecting it to be as grounded as it was. But I, you know, I really enjoyed it because of that. All the three main characters are all turning in ster- stellar performances. Um, Hugo Weaving is great. Uh, it's it's so fun to see him sort of before he's, you know, three different generations of villain. Um, right uh guy pierce is is fabulous and again it's it's more fun than i think i've seen him perform in as many years and terrence stamp as bernadette who is who is different than the other two because they are a trans character uh the movie deals more with these sort of issues than i was expecting it to yeah, it's actually in a lot of ways more modern than I would have thought. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, a lot of the issues that are brought up in terms of uh, violence towards uh, the transgender community and the drag community and, and those kind of things, those are issues that are still very much relevant. Well, um, um, unfortunately, even more so, you know, like not even more so, but uh, are getting a lot more attention right now, you know, due to the fucking political landscape and the social media landscape. And it's so loud right now. 
Right. It's come up recently. It's being used as a talking point. It's being used as a wedge issue. And it's dehumanizing language, and they're doing it up very much on purpose. Yes. And, well, and, and I guess to my point is this movie, I, I think, specifically addresses it in so many ways, right? Like, there, you know, there's this whole subplot with Hugo Weaving's characters. We're getting into spoiler territory. So if you're interested in this movie, I'd say just go watch it because it's definitely fucking worth it. Um, you know, is is this sort of reluctant father character um, because of all of this stigma that they have bought into and every other character doesn't give a fuck. Nobody else gives a shit. Like, nobody else is even concerned with it because it's not a thing. And the right. way this movie addresses it, it, I think, is so beautifully done uh, with this character who's so afraid of what there's you know what this child's reaction is going to be and they don't give a shit because hate is taught like it's such it's and it's just such a, a, a i think good illustration of that right i mean i think his character arc is really interesting because of that and especially when he meets the the biological mother again and she is even more sort of accepting than he is of himself and his world. Yeah. And then, you know, there's, and, this, and there's whole... this, this tension that is this built, built up, right? Cause we don't get to experience the biological mother as a character until the very end. And so, you know, there, there's this tension of, Oh, well, what is this reunion going to be like? And we get to build that anxiety through the lens of, of Hugo Weaving's character. Uh, and then just the way it's dealt with, I think, is beautifully done. Yeah, there's a few more There's a few more things that come up in this movie that I felt were especially poignant. Um, there's the flashback sequence with mm -hmm. the Guy Pierce character, which seemed... It, like they're framing it in the sort of classic trope of those who later be uh, become gay or or you know whatever um, whatever spectrum it's because of some sort of abuse and they tiptoe right up to that to that <laughs> narrative and then pull the rug out the rug out from under it and give him all the power. Oh, in I that. mean, li they literally pull the string on that scene. And uh, yeah, yeah again, very. This movie had a sensitivity that I was not expecting it to. Like, you know, we're talking about the 90s. So when when it comes to, you know, the LGBTQ. Uh, uh, material, you can kind of go either way with it. Uh, and I think this movie does this thing where it has this fun sort of pop sensibility about it. Like it plays like a road comedy, just the characters happen to be drag queens. Yes. And, and, and I think that the, the, you know, the fact that it makes that distinction between Taryn Stam's character and the other two of, you know, they're putting on a costume and doing a performance while they can, 
Well, but uh, Bernadette is also putting take... on a performance, but it's it's different because they are transgender. Well, well, yeah. I mean, she is a performer with the other with the yes. other two when they're on stage, but when they're off stage, yes. they can take everything off and you know, for lack of a better word, pass. Mm-hmm. Whereas Bernadette doesn't have that, mm-hmm. and it changes the dynamics for her. And there's also this really tender um, romance story yeah. in here with her that I was I was not expecting or s- could see coming. Yeah. Where now the one area of this movie, yeah, <laughs> and I the, think because we, it deals with the same subplot, right? Is is there's this character yeah. of Bob who they encounter on the road, uh, who yes, there, there's this very tender romance subplot but then there's also um some very racist uh sort of caricatures of um of you know asians yes a a filipino uh sort of mail order bride that he had met which i watched the whole thing on this um after i saw the movie but apparently the this was a thing that happened kind of a lot with Australian sure. military men where they would bring home uh, mistresses from these other parts of uh, the world, specifically Asia. And then a lot of times it wouldn't work out because they would promise them the world and you're going to live like a queen when you're back in Australia. And then they're, you know, out in the middle of nowhere and out back, and then they they have to you know choose their own thing, and so in that regard, they give the character a little bit of autonomy. But yeah, I mean, and, and I mean, she she does she has more agency than you might expect, uh, but but a lot of it is still played culturally pretty tone deaf. Oh, hardcore! I mean, it, she's. She's essentially there as a sort of tokenized joke, and it's 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 uh, pretty pretty cringy. It's pretty hard to to watch. Which is which is fun fact. Fun yeah. fact though, uh, this is the same actress who, as if this movie wasn't gay enough already, her other main feature performance that most people know her from is as Rita Repulsive. In the Power Rangers movie. Oh, interesting. Oh, all right. That's kind of fun. Um, yeah. Well, that part, I think, especially now, is so shocking because everything else sort of plays to this idea of, of cultural empathy and sensitivity and then we get to this moment and it's like, oh, whoa, okay, like, it's still racist. We're doing uh, this now, yeah. Yeah, which is, which is, yeah. it, it just makes it stand out in a way that, and I'm not justifying it at all. Like, if anything, it, it's unfortunate because I feel like the rest of the movie has aged so well. Um, right. That, that this moment is like, whoa, like, what? Um, but they're yeah. able to I mean, do- we even get one sequence, you know, on their adventure where the van's broken down and they, uh, perform for a group of aboriginals and uh-huh. it's, uh, 
very like multicultural and fun and 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 uh not tone deaf and it doesn't treat them like barbarian tribe in the middle of nowhere they're like an actual established uh group of people who are there and and Um, they they all like come together through this you know song and dance and it's really fun which mm -hmm. yeah it, it it's very strange uh the way they deal with Bob's wife. Yeah. Yeah. It, and mostly unfortunate, I would yeah. say. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It, it, it's been, I would yeah. say on, on the whole, the movie is, is, is very good. I actually, I, I like this a lot. I prefer it to Tu Wong Fu. Uh, just, you know, just on the, uh, I think it's a little bit more sprawling. It's a little bit more cinematic. Um, Tu Wong Fu is good fun, but I kind of put two, and, and I think this is what, what my initial reservations were about is like, I think of like movies like Tu Wong Fu and The Birdcage and In and Out as like that, like from 95 to, I don't know, 2005, there was sort of like gay movies for straight audiences I know exactly what you're talking about. The, the, it, it, you know, it's kind of the idea of um, uh, uh, what was that show? Will and Grace, right? Like, like the, it's okay to be gay as long as it's not threatening. And I think this movie is a, is a lot more nuanced than that. And it, uh, you know, this this has a little bit more of a, a little bit more of grit and an independent spirit to it. And uh, for that, I appreciate it. Plus, just watching these three actors play the way they do throughout the movie. They're having so much fun. And they're all um, churning out, like, I think, you know, some of their career performance. best performances. And yeah. it, it just, it feels a little more real. Uh, not everybody's nice all the time. And it's not always sanitized. And it's not, you know, and it's. And their looks are fucking fabulous. I will say their their dances could use a little work. Um, the, the actual performances yeah. <laughs> were a little busted, but is the '90s, so I'll cut them some slack. But their looks were fucking on point. Like, yeah, you have Guy the... Pierce on top of a fucking bus, you know, wearing a a, a half mile long silver frock. Blowing in the wind, sitting in a giant high heel shoe, like it's gorgeous. Yeah, that I mean that that's an image that I've seen played in a lot of montages before. It's um, but so, it's there's a reason it it it's well, shot beyond for, the like yeah beyond the fact that it it's a, it's a great piece of costuming. It's just that's what I mean. There's a sort of a cinematic element to this movie, and and that. With the outback in the background mm-hmm. and, and, you know, them treating the road movie as more, you know, in the, sort of the the classic Australian tradition of Australia as the uh, as a form of the Western. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, kind of being played on. And, and this idea of like, you know, sort of subverting the masculinities of those tropes through these three characters instead of, you know, Mad Max or instead of 
uh, the people on cow- in cowboy hats and on horses or whatever, you have these three drag queens that are trekking what would normally be this sort of apocalyptic horizon. Yeah. So I I dug this one. Yeah, I thought it was a lot of fun. And, and genuinely, I thought it was just kind of a funny, good hang of a movie. It's very light and breezy, and but, but it doesn't do that... It doesn't sacrifice story or character to to get vibes. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I mean, I think that the movie is character first. And it is also, you know, it's dealing with a lot, a lot of different balls in the air thematically in terms of what it's, what the, you know, I think that line that, that Terrence Stamp says about, like, you know, because they're so ready to get out of Sydney and stop doing this, these performances they've been doing and see the rest of Australia. And then they realize, you know, the city is sort of what's protecting them. Yeah, it's it's there's a safety in it, yeah. Um, which I'm uh lifting that argument directly from the video essay I watched. So after you've seen Priscilla Queen of the Desert or The Adventures of Priscilla Queen of the Desert, uh go to YouTube and watch Matt Baum's video on on the movie because he does a really great breakdown of it too. And he talks a lot more about the history of Australian drag and uh, the different uh, legal processes behind the culture up to and including the years that this movie came out. Yeah. Cool. It was a lot of fun. Uh, Okay. So what do you have us have for us for next week's streaming homework? Uh, for next week, we are still in the month of June, so for uh, for Pride, uh, and I have wanted to watch Professor Marston and the Wonder Women uh, for a while now, so that is what we're going to be watching. It's available on Tubi and Amazon and Canopy, if you have it. <laughs> and if anybody has anything to say about any of the topics we brought up in this episode or previous you can hit us up on a, at our email, mcguffinpod at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram and leave us a DM there. We're also searchable under uh, uh, Facebook if you still have it. Uh, we're on Letterboxd where you can see all of the movies that we do for our streaming homework under different lists I've put together and regularly update as, we, as we're doing those and uh we're on tiktok we got some clips going up there and hopefully some more coming soon i don't know we're on all the things check for mcguffin pod (laughs) um and be sure to leave us a five-star rating and a one-sentence review on whatever podcast app you use to listen to us on specifically itunes or spotify uh the more reviews and ratings we get the further we're pushed up the film and television category algorithm, or however that works. And like I said before, word of mouth is your friend. So if you know anybody who likes podcasts and are looking for new ones to listen to, recommend them our show. 
You can follow me individually on Twitter and Instagram at VC Cassidy. You can read the reviews I do for the Idaho State Journal by Googling Idaho State Journal Movie Reviews or Idaho State Journal Arts and Entertainment page. And that'll take you to the review archives. And be sure to read the other reviews and articles by the rest of the MacGuffin staff at MacGuff.in, where you can also find uh, the podcasts archived. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Keith Foster Kid. Uh, also, if you want to see me perform live, I perform at Mockingbird Improv Theater. I'm part of the show Improv vs. Stand-Up that performs uh, weekly on Saturday nights at 9. So uh, come check it out. You can follow both of those on the socials as well. Okay, and that is the episode. Um, do you have the Texas Chainsaw Mascara? Bye.